You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Come on, boys, potatoes in the paddy wagon, gotta get her out of there. Come on, boys, potatoes in the paddy wagon, mama says it just ain't fair. Hey folks, it's Mike White, host of the Projection Booth Podcast, bringing you a little something extra this week with our episode about Smile. When I was talking to folks such as Nicholas Pryor, Barbara Felden, Denise Nickerson, and Annette O'Toole, there were some extra stuff, some questions that I asked them that didn't necessarily relate to Smile, but that I found interesting nonetheless. I hope that you find that interesting as well. So let's go ahead and we're going to play back some interviews here in order. This is going to be... Annette O'Toole, Denise Nickerson, Barbara Felden, and Nicholas Pryor. Let's go ahead and roll those interviews and be sure to check out our episode on Smile, available this week. For you, what do you think is kind of that that role that really put you on the map? Because I know Smile was not necessarily the one um, because of the the failure at the box office or just, you know, didn't have the the splash that it should have had. What was the one that really kind of put you on the map? Was it something like a cat people or or 48 hours? No, actually, I think it was one-on-one in a weird way. I mean, what it did was uh, it, it kind of came out of the blue one-on-one. I mean, I, I got it through a fluke. Uh, Kathleen Quinlan was supposed to play the role originally, and then something happened because scheduling on something else. She couldn't do it. And I had gone in for the part originally for, and met Lamont Johnson, but I hadn't read with Robbie. I didn't know Robbie Benson. So they were scrambling. I mean, they were going to start shooting like in two or three weeks, and they needed somebody, and they had tested people, and they wanted to go with somebody else. So anyway, I go back in, and I meet Robbie. I read with him. And it it was great. And I go home. It was one of those wonderful moments where you walk in the door. And nobody had cell phones. Nobody had, you know, I had an answering service that I would call. You know, you didn't even have a machine then. And I walked in the door and the phone was ringing and they said, you got the call. And it was like, I was like, oh, this is like a movie. This can't happen. And so that was very exciting. And then the movie was this little low budget thing. And, and then Warner Brothers had, I think, two other movies. It was um, The Exorcist sequel that didn't do well and the evil can evil movie that didn't really do well and so they decided to put all this money into publicizing one one and it really paid off for them it became you know really nice hit for them and it was very exciting so i think it put me in the position from my point of view it was the movie that put me in a position to be considered for other things for for, for bigger roles and I had a great time doing it. It was my first time working with Lamont Johnson, who became this wonderful sort of mentor to me. I worked with him like three or four more times after that. Um, and Rob, of course, I, I still say hi to from through different people who who know him. And uh, it was I've been I gosh I've been so lucky you know to to work with such wonderful people besides you know good good professional experiences. I wanted to know about Copacabana. That was awesome. I, I love Barry, and, and I. it was fun because I'd been trained in, in musical theater. You know, I'd always been a dancer and singer, and uh, I, I let that part of my life go because it was just auditioning, and that whole world was It's just so competitive, and if you don't do it all the time, you're just, you know, you're not... You know, it just doesn't work. So I, I really decided to concentrate on acting at, at a certain point in my life, and so anytime that something musical came up, like Copacabana or like Stand By Your Man or what, you know, different things like that, I, I would just jump at the chance. So they asked me to do it and I was thrilled to death and it was, it was, it was just fabulous. I, I had a ball doing it. 
my daughter, my first daughter was a year and a half years old. I was, um, I was living in Oregon at that time. I moved to, to Ashland, Oregon, uh, in 84 and lived there for 14 years. So I commuted and it was, it was nice because they just called me up and asked me to, to do it. And I said, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Yes. So I remember there's this whole sequence with the pirates throwing me around and my mother who was taking care of her brought her to the set because we were shooting at the Ambassador Hotel actually in the old Coconut Grove. So she didn't, she got very upset when she saw the pirates throwing me around. She was just very, very upset about that. So all the pirates had to come over and talk to her and play with her and make sure that she knew that they were just, <laughs> we were all having fun. It wasn't scary. It was fun. Can you tell me about some of your songwriting experience? I... I had never played an instrument. I'd always sung and danced and everything and been very musical, but I'm not like a, a musician musician. And once Michael and I were together, we, we just, you know, it became a family thing. We all sing. And he, he always said to me, you should play the mandolin. He said, you've got great, your fingers are kind of perfect for the mandolin. And I thought, I can't play an instrument. It's crazy. I, I, I'm too old. So when he was, they were doing a mighty wind. I, I was around a mandolin. I just picked one up and started kind of fooling around. with somebody showed me some chords, and I started taking some lessons. And I I can right now I, I can't play it because I broke my arm about two months ago, and I'm uh, I'm in a I'm a, yeah I'm in a brace right now. Actually, I have the brace off at the moment, but because I'm doing really well, I'm doing this play here in New York, and uh, I have to do it with a brace. And most people don't know I have it on, which is good. But anyway, so I haven't been playing a lot lately, but um, I can compose on it and, and know enough about it and, and can write a, a sort of uh, um, um, very rudimentary way of writing music, but enough so that I can get the point across so that people who do write music can help me with it. But um, we, Michael and I, uh, we started writing this song, Potatoes in, a Pat- in the Paddy Wagon for um, A Mighty Wind, and it was an accident. We were in the car driving from L.A. back to Vancouver after 9-11 because you couldn't get a flight. So I um, I had this tune in my head that I kept, kept going up through my head, and I said, "Is this? Am I making this up, or is this some old song?" I, I I'm just pulling out of my subconscious. He said, "I think that's a new new tune." So we just started putting lyrics to it, and uh, came out with the potatoes and patty wagon, and uh, played it for Chris, and he loved it. And he said, "Oh, that's great for the new Main Street Singers." And Chris asked about it. Then he, he wanted Michael to write this song for Mitch and Mickey. He said it's a love song, and all it has to have in it is a kiss. It's built around a kiss. So Michael said one night, do you want to write the song with me? And I said, sure. We sat down at the piano and wrote it in about, wrote the, the main part of it in about half an hour, an hour maybe. Then we walked our dog and started singing it outside and just kind of finishing it as we did our walk and came home and, and the song was written. And we uh, went over to Chris's and uh, he heard it and thought it was, too too good a song. He said, I don't think this will work. It's too, it's very beautiful and it's too good. It's not a funny song. And we were very lucky that Jamie B. Curtis happened to be home because she said, oh no, that's the song. That, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It, that's the song. But just in case, we went home and wrote another song <laughs> called uh, Closer Than Tomorrow that is also a very nice song. It's much more of like a leaving on a jet plane song. And, um, but then Chris made the decision that the uh, Kiss of the Under Rainbow was the song, and uh, and then we wrote another song, a sea shanty, and then of course Michael wrote tons of the music for the for the with various, you know, he and Eugene and Chris, or he and Chris and he and Harry, or different different couplings of of writers. It was a really fun time, and then uh, yeah, so we still we still write all the time. We have a ton of music that we've written that 
it seems to be out of sync with what people want, but we don't care. We, 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 we sing it ourselves. That must have been something to be, you know, one of your first few songs that you wrote and then to be nominated for an Oscar for it. Yeah, it was the second song I ever officially wrote. I've been writing songs all my life, I realize now, looking back. I mean, stuff I wrote in my head and sing to the kids and, you know, little things here and there. But now I actually put it down and record it. And, you know, we have a, a whole musical we've been working on for quite a long time that I don't know if we'll ever see the light of day, but, but it's fun to, to go back to it every once in a while when we have the time. Now, you said you're working on a play. What else have you been working on lately? I am. Um, I did... Mostly plays. I mean, I, I was, I'm in the Halt and Catch Fire, which is this AMC series that has had two seasons and hopefully we'll get another. I play uh, um, the mother of um, one of the main characters. And um, what else? Oh, God, I don't even know. I most mostly been working on plays. This one is taking up all my energy right now. It's called Hamlet in Bed. It's the Rattlestick Theater here in, in uh, New York. And it's doing really well. Audiences are, are really loving it. And I'm having a, a really good time. I find that the, the work I really want to do right now is on the on the stage. And, um, you know, the, the roles that are either available to me in TV or film, or mostly TV, are not all that interesting, you know. And I'd, I'd rather not uh, do something that's not, you know, vital. So it is. And I, I, I really love it. And um, so that's what I'm concentrating on right now. Well, hey, look at that. 28 minutes. And I, I, pr- I told them that I would uh, ask for 20 to 30. So that's perfect. Perfect. We're right in the, we're right in the pocket. Well, listen, I enjoyed talking about it and thinking about um, Smile again. It was really fun. I appreciate it. So you knew Melanie Griffith already. And you, um, well, she was a ch- uh, kind of a child actress. But you were definitely had been acting since, what, I, you were, what, eight years old when you started acting? Well, I started modeling and doing print work, like for catalogs and stuff like that, you know, um, fashion shows when I was two and a half. Then I moved to New York when I was nine after doing uh, shows down at the Coconut Grove Playhouse with that Buckman on that. Uh, Liz Taylor did him for a while. And I, the last one I did was Peter Pan with Betsy Palmer. And she said to my parents, she should take this girl to New York. She'll make you a lot of money. And so guess who went to New York? And so I did soap operas and then I did Broadway at night. And so I was, I was very, very busy. And then I think I made a bad decision at 16 to move to California because they had child labor laws where you had to have schooling and you could only film four hours a day. And 16 is so close to 18 that they would choose 18-year-old girls to play the 16-year-old girl. Well, I was in New York, there were no child labor laws. I mean, like I said, I was doing a soap all day long and then doing a Broadway show at night, too. So there were no labor laws, and so I was working constantly and then moved to California, and really my career kind of slowed down almost to a dead stop. I picked up a few things here and there. And then the last thing I did was when I was 21, which was the under 60 years, Darren McGavin. After that, I was 21, and I decided, I looked in the mirror one day, and I said, you know, I no, really, no longer really know the difference between reality and fantasy, and I just want to be normal. I, I just wanted to be normal, like everybody else. 
be able to make plans to take a vacation and take it because she'd never do that because I always had to be available if I got a job. So that's when I decided I would would quit. And William Morris was like apoplectic. He was like, God, you can't. What are you doing? So I started off a job for $5 an hour answering phones. And I got my first paycheck and my dad picked me up from work. And I said, Dad, look at this. There's something wrong with this. And he looked at my pay stub and he goes, no, that's right, Denise. And I go, people actually work for this amount of money? (laughs) I was just stunned. I mean, I came crashing down to reality in a real big, fast hurry. There's some figures missing here. Um, yeah, that's, that's right, Denise. And I go, my Lord. So luckily it was the eighties and there was a lot of on the job training that you could get, which I did. So I started with working phones at one place and then I got a job at a medical office being a receptionist and then I went into insurance milling and, you know, so I luckily kept climbing the ladder from one job to another job. I just simply, I call it sponging by, by listening to things that everybody was saying and learning them. You know, I really paid attention and learned what I needed to learn in order to do this stuff that paid more money because I certainly wasn't going to keep going with that amount of money. <laughs> so I, I was really lucky that way because my, my parents had spent all my money. There were no Jackie Cougar moms in New York um, where they didn't have to put the money away and they didn't. And uh, so I didn't have any money to go to college. I really wanted to be an attorney. And I really made it a damn good one, I think. But money wasn't there. And so I just did what I could to keep going. And so I considered that the second half of my life. And then, of course, I became a mom and raised Josh by myself as a, as a single parent. And my family was all passed on by that point in time. So it was just him and me. It was a difficult way to do things in life, but I never took the seemed to take the easy way anyway. If there was a hard way to do it, yes, I'm right in front. <laughs> when you're there working your insurance job and working the phones and these kind of things, how often would people look at you and be like, I know you, I know you from somewhere? Never, never, no. I would know people through five years and they would not know I had ever been an actress. I never, never said anything about it because I didn't want people to be my friend or accept me because of that, that role I played or anything. You know, I went through that when I was acting. It was very hard to actually meet authentic people because they would see me as my last role. You know, you were the blueberry, da da da. So I didn't tell people at all for years, and Wonka was not what it is today at all. And years and years and years went by, and I didn't do anything involving the business. I think it was kind of, I think it was like 93 that I did my first convention for Dark Shadows, and then I think it was. 98 was when we all got together for the first time on Wonka. So, yeah, there were decades that went by that nobody knew anything about my previous life. I was lucky that way. I never got to be that famous. You know what I mean? I was, but not really. And, of course, 
the business back in the 70s was not what it is now, you know, and I quit in 78. So things were a lot different then. And, um, of course, I changed from the child people were used to seeing to an adult. So it wasn't that uh, recognition. Like I said, Lanka was not what it was. So the only real recognition that I kept was the Dark Shadows uh, conventions. And that was a huge, huge membership. Annual conventions, three-day conventions, and big, big, big deal. I was walking the line because you know, would stand in line for three hours um, for autographs. And they wanted to really see the, like, Angelique, and, you know, the ones that they really, the big ones that they knew. So I'd walk the line and I said, does anybody want me? And they all looked and they were like, why would we want you? Who the hell are you? So, yeah, so it was, it was kind of weird there for a while getting back into it. And then when Wonka became what it, what it has become, particularly before the release of the death one, I would, I would have a phone interviews like this one, um, but it would be with a, you know, someone in Australia or you know, London or somewhere. And I'd be in my cubicle at work doing finance <laughs> and, and uh, I'd break for 15 minutes and, slip into the actress role and do the phone interview and then slip back into being the finance person. It was, it was, it was, it was unusual. It was, it was very unusual. Nothing, I, nothing that I'm sad about at all. It's all been just terrific. I can't believe that all these years later, you know, we're the lucky ones. We really did win the golden ticket when we got to do that film. And everybody else is like, oh, my God, I wish it was you. And da-da-da. It's really, we're, we're the ones who are lucky. It's, we just got blessed and were chosen to play the role. And what a role it was. I mean, you know, forever recognition in the hearts of many, 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 many generations. And, uh, I mean, what's, there's no downside to it, you know? <laughs> I just realized that um, both Dark Shadows and Willy Wonka were remade by Tim Burton. That must be kind of an odd thing for you to see the remakes. It's funny. We have uh, Chris Parente has a morning show out here. He started out as the local entertainment reporter on TV and and got his own morning show, et cetera. And he goes back and forth and interviews the big stars out in L.A., and I guess he had uh, an interview with Burton and uh, Depp at the time that the second one was coming out, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. And uh, he he said that he was talking to Tim Burton, and Tim Burton said, oh, I just love Denise Nickerson. I just think she's great. I'm like, my God, can you believe that? Tim Burton even knows who I am. And and so I told Chris Parente, I said, well, that's just because he keeps trying to redo the stuff I already did, and he's not very successful with it. <laughs> <laughs> Would you consider Smile maybe one of your first adult roles? Yeah, probably. Probably. I'm not sure how adult I was at the time. You know, I was only 16 or 17 when we did it. Um, but uh, I would think so. 
Um, I always tended, I looked younger than I was, and I always played younger characters in the roles I was chosen to do. With the exception of Neon Ceiling, um, they had been looking for a person, an actress to, to play that role that I played, Paul or something or another, I don't know. Um, and it was one of the first uh, TV movie, movie of the weeks that, that used to be on TV in the 70s. And it was one of the first ones done. And Lee Grant actually ended up being um, nominated twice in the same category that year. It was one of the first times it ever happened. And she won for the other thing she was nominated for. I can't remember the name of it now. But I had uh, done that right before Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And it was a, a really kind of a dark film. It, it, it was just one of those you know, funky kind of new age uh, projects. It wasn't uh, a Willy Wonka or something like that. It was, it was a, a, a study of this crazy woman with her daughter. And so uh, it was kind of a dark film, and uh, Lee Grant was very dark. She she was known to be a method actress, and by God, she was. Gig Young was fabulous to work with. It was so much fun. And Lee Grant's probably five one, five two, and Gig was you know a tall man, and she'd come on set, and he'd look up at the ceiling, and he'd say, "Good morning, Mr. Grant." If she didn't like the way that the take was going, she would just stop in the middle of it and say, I need a Diet Pepsi. And then she just would just stop just in the middle of the shoot. It was, she was, she was an interesting person. Definitely. Definitely an interesting person. I wanted to know, what was it like working with Darren McGavin on Zero to Sixty? Oh, fabulous. I had been going to do something with him in Nova Scotia a couple of years earlier. And, it was at a time towards the end of my career. Yeah, that was the last thing I did. He had been looking for me and was having a hard time locating me because he had wanted me to do that role. He wanted me to be uh, whatever my name was. But um, Larry, Larry. And uh, he was was great, funny, funny man. And his wife, Kathy, was the the executive producer on it. And it was a long shoot, a long shoot. Towards the end, we were working long, long days. And towards the end, you know, everybody was just exhausted. But um, So we finished it, and I guess about two months later, he called me up and we were going to do a pickup shot of things they wanted to add to the film. So we did that for a week or so, and uh, that was going to be a huge, huge thing. And uh, First Artist was a company that was Dustin Hoffman, and I can't remember the other actors who were involved in it, but um, they all agreed to do a certain number of projects for this company. And I think it was Dustin Hoffman who sued the company because he didn't, he didn't like the way that they cut the ending and the company went under and we were supposed to release that summer of 78 and then they pushed it back to Christmas of 78 because there's a bunch of car movies out that summer 
And this was about repossessing cars. I don't know if you've ever seen the film. And so there were so many other car movies out that they decided to delay it. And in the interim, that six-month period was when he won his lawsuit and the company went under. And so it was never released in the theaters. But it would have been quite quite the coup had it been released, but it wasn't. But I still enjoyed doing it. I loved the film. It's one of my favorite favorite things I ever did. Yeah, I didn't realize that it was never released theatrically. I, I think I saw it on VHS the first time a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was never released. Never went in the theaters. It was it was to be, and I had it was interesting, you know, photo shoots with French magazines that summer, coming and you know in preparation of the release, doing photo shoots and stuff, and it was it was quite interesting. And it was right after that that I decided to quit. I felt I had reached a certain level of success where I was no longer having to read for things. You know, Quinn Martin would just call me up and say we're sending the script be in San Francisco next Monday, you know. So I had reached that level of success, and uh, that was pretty high up for, for what I was looking to attain. And uh, the average life of a successful TV actress back in 78 was 10 years. And I thought, and that was very rare, you know, look at your Charlie's Angels and stuff, and once that series was over, you didn't hear about them anymore. And so I figured I'd have 10 years if I was lucky, and I'd be 31 with no college and having to figure out a skill, a job, to support myself. And so I figured I'd better start at 21 rather than 31 and go out when I still had a level of uh, respect. You know, I didn't want to be the, the lady pushing the shopping cart down the sidewalk. So I that's. I did something. I don't know where I found the wherewithal at 21 to see that, you know, have that type of insight. But I did. I don't regret it. They called me to do a series with uh, Tony Randall. Um, It was a comedy show where he was uh, gay and the mother and her daughter lived with Jim. Anyway, and I was working at, at the medical office then, and I said, oh, no, I can't take any time off. And, you know, I have a job. So <laughs> I just kind of just blew the whole thing off. And my first husband would say, well, why don't you think about going back into it? You can make so much money. And I said, no, I, I've done it. Been there, done that, got pictured, burned it. You know, I'm into the next phase of my life. I've turned the page and into the next chapter. And all I want to be is normal. Now, why I wanted to be normal after I found out what normal meant, that's a whole different conversation. Because <laughs> normal was not as, as exciting as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I know this is a lot earlier than Smile, but can you tell me about how you kind of got your break in the business as far as that whole pomade commercial? Oh, okay. First of all, it was Revlon. Um, people remember it differently. Some people think it was a gasoline tiger in, their t- in the tank. <laughs> but no, it was for Revlon. It was top dress, hairdressing for men. And I was modeling at the time. I, I had been an actress. I mean, I came to New York to be an actress, and I got so discouraged that I began modeling, which actually was fascinating to me. 
um, and did that commercial. But that commercial never led to anything in terms of acting. Uh, it, it would seem that it would have, but it didn't. And uh, some people just thought, some people thought that it was somebody else's voice on it, that, uh, you know, I was a model and they <laughs> they overdubbed an actress's voice. The way I just simply put, the way I got my break is I was under contract to Revlon and I was very happy with my job and not really looking to be an actress anymore. And my agent called one day and said, uh, George Scott, uh, George C. Scott is doing a series out in Queens called East Side, West Side, which was a marvelous, gritty series that only lasted one year. It was probably too good for TV in the way it is, that old expression. I said, no, I didn't want to go out and do a walk on one line. I wasn't really interested in acting. And and he said, you have nothing to do today. Just get in the cab and go out. And I did. And I did the one line in the disco scene with George. And um, I had met him before because he was married to Colleen Dewhurst, who I had met in Pittsburgh in summer stock. And Colleen was just like this big mother figure. And she was so kind to me. And she had me to dinner one night with she and George. But I was too shy to go up to George on the set. He didn't even know I was there. And Colleen happened to be on the set that day. And she saw me. And she said, oh, my goodness, come into the dressing room. And I went in. And George said, would you like to play my girlfriend next week? And I, I, I did. <laughs> I want to do that. And I did it. And that production company, Talent Associates, also produced a show with Craig Stevens called Mr. Broadway. And they then asked me, because of my role on East Side, West Side, they asked me if I would just do, um, you know, a one guest shot on Mr. Broadway playing an industrial spy, a very sexy industrial spy. And I did. And then Talent Associates, when they got the script for Get Smart from Mel Brooks and Buck Henry, they read it and said, oh, my God, that is exactly the performance that Barbara did on Mr. Broadway. So they just offered me the role, and that's how it happened. It was all because I knew Colleen, and she kind of plucked me off the set that day and started this thing rolling in the right direction. And it was, yeah, right time, right place, luck. Uh, in my career, I have known so many wonderful actresses and beautiful, talented, who never had that piece of luck that I had. And I am so very aware of that and feel very fortunate. What was that like being on Get Smart and kind of being that straight man who's so much smarter than your partner? Well, it, it was, first of all, it was just a joy to act with Don Adams because he had this amazing sense of timing and energy so that I didn't really have to do anything except when they say action, just talk to him. <laughs> the whole thing just took off. The, the character of Agent 99, I think, was... Um, it was on the brink of the women's movement, 
And I think Mel and Buck, when they were writing it, you know, sensed this, uh, that it was kind of a combination of, of the 50s woman who was very um, deferential to her guy, which 99 always was, and yet anticipating the women's movement where women were going to be in positions of power and um, be able to uh, perform on a level high or higher than the guy. And they, I think, combined that so beautifully in a little cocktail called Agent 99. And Agent 99 was actually more evolved than I was at that time. I was very much on the 50s side, you know, very you know, very, very deferential to men. And so I think it was just, you know, it was just a perfect time in history for 99 to have been born. When Get Smart was over, at least that first time, because I know you've reprised that role a few more times, what was your career like? What was it like uh, getting more work after that? After the the first year after Get Smart was over, I didn't work at all. And I, I think that uh, people felt I was so identified with that character, they really didn't want to use me. Um, then it, I did a number of guest shots on hour-length shows uh, in the next year or two, and I began to do lots of variety shows. Um, Carol Burnett and Dean Martin and I... It, and I loved doing variety. And I thought, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I just want to do sketch comedy and do musical numbers. And this would be a perfect life. And then in one year, they all went off the air. In one year, they all disappeared. And it taught me such a life lesson about change. You know, to never take anything for granted. You know, you've been in so many great roles. What have been some of your favorites over the years? Well, Brenda, definitely. <laughs> I would say Brenda and Agent 99 were the uh, my favorites. And on Get Smart, my favorite episode is when Don and I got to dress up as Charlie Chaplin and play a love scene in mustaches. and. <laughs> I love that. When I was a kid, I went to see the nude bomb at the drive-in. Yeah. But you weren't in that one. No, they didn't ask me to be in it. And I didn't want to be in it anyway. I mean, I, I, I wanted to move on from Get Smart. And then I just heard that they had made it and they wanted to make it without 99 because they wanted Don, you know, surrounded by new bio, you know, really young women. And I think that was their thinking at the time. And uh, to tell you the truth, I really, really didn't care. But they, they, I think they were a little uncomfortable about it later on. But you did come back for 99 for what was it a TV movie and a, another series, right? Uh, yes. Yes, they they I think they were a little nervous that I wouldn't do the movie because <laughs> because I was left out of the first one and that um, I really didn't care. It was fine. I want to ask you, what was it like? Um, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, working with the guy who played Chief. 
Oh, Ed, Ed Platt. Ed Platt was so important to that show. He was like the anchor that just held the whole thing steady. He was a consummate actor, and uh, he had the hardest dialogue because he had to, to explain devices and technical maneuvers and things, all with these the strange nomenclature, and he had to rattle that stuff off day after day. And Don would make bets that he would get his tongue tangled in his teeth, and the more Don would make bets, of course, the more Ed would flood the line, you know, and that was Don's little joke. He was he was warm. He was he was just very dear and such a lovely person and it's such an important element in the show. Can you tell me a little bit about your writing career? Um, I don't have a writing career. I I write. <laughs> um, I've I, I've always written. I've always enjoyed writing. I I've written journals since I was in my twenties, and that are just collecting dust. <laughs> Somewhere, um, I write every day, and and then uh, someone asked me to do a seminar on any topic I wanted, and so I said, okay, um, I'll do it on living alone because that had been kind of a an interesting um, journey for me. I'd always been with someone, and then suddenly I wasn't, and I I had to learn how to live alone and really find it to be a first-rate life, and uh, I had met a lot of women who didn't feel that way, who felt, you know, that it it was second-rate, and they were waiting for Mr. Wright to come along, so I did the seminar on that, and then afterwards I thought, you know, I think that's a book, so I took it to an agent, and and yes, it was, so I wrote it, and Simon & Schuster published it, and after that, I wrote a memoir about my very unusual marriage, nine-year marriage to um, a very um, (laughs) colorful guy. And um, I wrote it as a novel, and it was a great lengthy tome of a novel, and nobody was interested. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to cut it down, and I cut it down, and then I thought... No, that doesn't work. No, I'm telling you something that took years and years to do every day working on this thing. Um, But I loved doing it. I really enjoyed it. And then finally, I I thought, okay, I'm just going to throw the novel out and I'm going to write it as a memoir. This is the true story of being married to a guy who is... uh, psychopathic <laughs> and it was kind of a kind of a dramatic and, and kind of fun story so I wrote it as a memoir and but when I finished writing it it was only 65 pages long and I felt I had told the whole story and there was an agent who said she would love to do something with it but I would have to make it three times as long and I thought, no, I don't think so. So now I'm just thinking of maybe putting it online or something or, you know, reading it. I love reading to people. And just maybe set up a site and read this story. And I do, I do a lot of essays on my life here in New York that are on a website and um, sometimes in a little magazine here in New York. And so that's it. It's all very, very casual writing Um, I can't say career at all, nor do I even want it to be. (laughs) 
what website is that that you you are posting your writings to? Well, the the essays are on a thing called artistshare.com, where I also have the audio the audio version of my book, Living Alone and Loving It. But if I do put the memoir on, um, you know, online, I would I would start a new site. What are you up to these days? I just have the loveliest life here in New York. I have wonderful friends here. And every night, uh, there's something else to do. Tonight, when we hang up, I'm going to um, grab a bite and then go to Carnegie Hall for a concert that the Orchestra of St. Luke's is doing of um, Stravinsky and Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky. I'm on the board of that orchestra, so I have friends there. That'll be lovely, lovely, lovely evening. Um, a couple of days ago, I had a musical evening here, which I have every two weeks where we all sing. Um, each one is a performer, professional, and and we each perform for each other uh, every other week and have dinner here, which is a really beautiful evening. And then... Um, you know, there I go to plays a lot and hear lots of music and, you know, I write during the day and then I go out in the evening and study singing. I'm studying French and traveling. I came back from India a couple of months ago and I'm going to Australia in a couple of weeks. So it's just a life with a variety of things in it which is really sort of my philosophy. It's sort of the smorgasbord idea of living, which is taste everything, you know, try to experience as much as you can. How did you get into acting anyway? Oh, in school plays, I liked it, and it seemed like it was a lot easier than writing. And then I got a little older. It was an opportunity to kiss girls. Uh, well, a lot of us got into it like that. Pretty much, I, after a while, everybody else was kind of fooling around, and and I was uh, I was <laughs> I was dead serious about it. So it's a little bit like being in a in a small weapons class with Billy the Kid. When you were first starting to get into television, was kind of the mid to late fifties. Is that about it was right? The- tail end of the golden era. It was still live. It was black and white, and it's still live. Nobody ever mentions that, but you did two shows. You did one for the East Coast, and then a couple hours later, you did another one for the West Coast. You had done a lot of work on stage, so I imagine that prepares you pretty well for doing live television, but were there any tricks that you had to learn once it came to TV work versus stage? Uh, no, except <laughs> it's pretty much inside baseball, but I'll tell the story anyway. I, uh, I was the first RCA NBC scholar at Yale University. They paid my tuition senior year. Well, they started a new thing and they thought it would be, um, good public relations. And, um, I got my senior year tuition out of it. And then when I got to New York, I had already done uh, professional television in New York at that point. But I used, I used to get these letters from somebody at RCA, NBC, saying, uh, 
is there anything we can do for you? Can, can we, uh, you know, would you like to be a page? Stuff like that. So uh, I, one day, out of the clear blue sky, I said, yeah, I'd like to meet Fred Coe. Well, at that point, Fred Coe was the premier producer in uh, uh, New York television. And they said, oh, okay. So now I had to have a reason for me. I mean, what am I going to say to Fred Coe? Hi, Fred. I came up with this idea that NBC should sponsor a workshop that would be available to select performers who were not experienced in television or on camera uh, for somehow they somehow they could get some kind of advance, uh, you know, just the thing you asked, was there anything I should know about acting on camera? So I thought this sounded nifty. So I, and who knows, maybe something would come of it. So <laughs> I got ushered into Fred Coe's office and I laid out this, <laughs> this, this very lame to me now sounding proposition. And Fred Coe, who was very emotional and very outspoken, proceeded to hand me my head. He, he told me <laughs> in no uncertain terms that he had never heard an actor come into his office with a, a more foolish idea and he started rattling off all of those actors from uh, Marty Balsam to Julie Harris to yada, 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 and they wouldn't be interested in this. So what made me think that anybody else would be interested in this? And uh, years later, I had an opportunity to uh, mention this to Fred Coe when I worked on uh, The Adams Family, which was a television series, that, and he happened to direct the, the episode that I did. Fortunately, he had no memory of it whatsoever. So it was one of those terrible gaps that never, ever happened, except now I've told you about it, so I'll have to kill you. The thing is, obviously, you're smaller, and you're, you don't talk as loud. But beyond that, it seems like the same process. I'm not the biggest star you're interviewing this week, so maybe I didn't learn as well as I thought. But at any rate, it's mostly a question of, as in all cases, the, the, the material and the director. I really liked you on uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. What oh, my was... God, you saw that. Well, that was literally my first experience on camera, and I was very uncomfortable because I had this, I had this idea that I was essentially miscast that it should have been George Papard. And I still think I'm right about that, but of course he had moved beyond that at that point. Because MCA, my agents at the time, had been trying to get me a show in California, and they had a relationship with the people in the Hitchcock production, and uh, so that's how it all came about. The show took a whole week to shoot, which shows you how long ago that was. And the first two days were rehearsal. I showed up at Universal for my first day of rehearsal, and these gorgeous sets, these unbelievable sets had been built. Uh, all of this detail, I wandered around with my mouth open, and finally we got down to work, and we walked through the first scene, and, uh, and the director was a man named Robert Flory. 
he went all the way back to the 30s in the silence, said, uh, okay, now we'll move over to that. And I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> they looked at me, and they said yes. And I said, well, we we, we could certainly do it that way, but um, why don't we rehearse it a little bit and see if something else shows up? And <laughs> they exchanged a long look, like the New York actor has suddenly shown up. So we did it a couple of other ways. The rest of the cast a little half-heartedly, I thought, at the time. Uh, so it was concluded that we would do it pretty much the way Bob had laid it out. So <laughs> that's pretty much how the week started for me. Um, I loved the people I was working with. Anne Helm was a sweetheart, and Abraham Sophia was, a, was somebody... I put it right up there beside Sam Jaffe. I came back from that trip to California with a baluster from the Psycho House. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was standing on the back lot, and I was driving around soaking up movie lore, and I turned a corner, and there it was, by God. So I got myself up on the porch and pried a baluster loose. There was no back to the house, of course, which was really weird because you open the door... And on the the set side of the door, there were curtains and things tacked up for reverse shots, but there was no there was no there there. But I had about that baluster for years. Damn, wonder what happened to it. I know you went into uh, you did a lot of TV movies, went into doing um, uh, more theatrical type movies. What was the, the first one where you were really the lead character? Was that something like, um, was a man on a swing? Was it the way we live now? The, the way we, yeah, that was, uh, that was the first uh, film I ever did. It was an independent feature in New York, and it was a disaster. It was just a, the same guy, a man named Barry Brown, who uh, was very successful in commercials. At the time, his father was a man named Hyman Brown, who very famous in in old time radio circles. He's the man who owned the creaking door. Well, Barry did the adaptation, and he uh, directed it, and he photographed it, and he edited it. And <laughs> we used to joke around on the set that we hoped he was really Orson Welles because he'd taken on a lot of jobs. And lo and behold, it turned out he wasn't. When it was finally released, it was part of a United Artists had a program in which they would they'd give you $500,000 to make a movie. And they figured if you showed up with cans of film that were in any kind of sequence and at all photographed, uh, they were way ahead of the game. So they gave Barry $500,000 to make this movie, and we did. And it was finally released uh, to a New York theater. And the day that I went to see it, there were four people in the theater. It was a big theater in the East 50s, and uh, it was my wife and me and uh, another couple. Um, I don't know what they were doing there. <laughs> Oh, it was awful. But the funniest part about it was 
that the man in charge of the whole project was David Picker. And when I went in, I had heard that David uh, had recut the way we live now entirely. He had, he had just taken the whole thing apart and put it back together again. So the day that I went in to audition for Smile, I read for Michael Ritchie, the director, and we got about halfway through the script, and he said, wait a minute, I want David to come in here and hear this. And I thought, oh, shit, oh, God, that's the end of this one. Because David is going to take one look at me and say, oh, my God, you're that guy from the way we live now. Goodbye. But he didn't. Then all the time that we were shooting in Santa Rosa, I kept waiting for David to drop the other shoe. And he never did. And finally, I went to Marion Doherty, and I said, I got this big problem. I mean, everybody's going around saying that, you know, this I'm making my debut and introducing and all this horseshit. And not only is that not true, but I told the whole story of the way we live now and David recounting it. And she said, well, why don't you just ask him? Because, you know, it's making you crazy. And um, who knows? Maybe he liked it. Maybe he was the only one in the world liked that movie. So I finally summoned up my courage in the hotel dining room, which had just, how long ago this was, it had just blossomed with those things that they put over the open containers of the salad stuff. The law had just passed. This was that long ago. And I said, David, (laughs) guess what? And I told him the whole story, and he looked at me and he said, you're kidding. (laughs) I said, no. And he said, you're not that guy. And I said, well, you know, he said, no, you're not that guy. You know, it never crossed my mind. Uh, You're doing a great job. Great. Jesus. Yeah, it's a small world sometimes, smaller than you think. It sounds like it. It sounds like you you were good at not making an impression when you shouldn't be making an impression. I think that I think you have just described my career, Mike. I think you have just described my career because nobody. Well, that's not true. Many more people have always thought they recognized me because they worked with me or they. You know, I, you know, you we went to school together or something. Not so much for performance. That people might recognize you on the street, and uh, you know. Oh yeah, somebody stopped me in in a, in the market last week, remembering a soap I did. Now we are really talking a long time ago because this particular soap started the summer of 1964, and she remembered it. Makes you wonder. <laughs> how eventful her life may have been. But who knows? Who knows what they're watching? Do you get a lot of people um, wanting you to do lines from Airplane? No. uh, Airplane was not one of my line movies. Airplane was kind of a fluke. I fought like a tiger to get into Airplane. And everybody, nobody could understand why. Because as people kept pointing it out to me, there, there weren't any parts. And I said, no, but it's going to be a big hit. And I had never been in a big hit. I discovered that it's probably better 
if you're in a big hit in a recognizable part, but I hadn't thought that far ahead. When I went in to, to talk to the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrahams, I was the only one who knew about flight into danger. Matter of fact, I knew more about flight into danger than they did. Flight into danger was the first written material that Oliver Haley ever produced. And I knew that story, and they were enthralled. Do you know that story? I only know the uh, the zero-hour version of it, but I know that they've adapted that several times, but I haven't read the story. Well, no, what happened with him was that he was a tractor salesman in Canada, and he was calling on people in Toronto, and he had a little time off, and he was walking along the street, and he looked up, and he saw a sign advertising a, uh, an aptitude test. And he thought, that's kind of funny. Maybe he'd take that aptitude test and see if he had an aptitude for anything except tractor sales. So he took the test, and he finished his afternoon calls, and he was flying back to the West Coast, flying back to Vancouver that night. But he stopped off at the aptitude test to get his results. And they asked him if he had ever done any writing, creative writing. He said, no, I write a lot of orders for tractors. Ha ha. And they said, well, you might give that a thought because you test off the charts for creative writing. He said, huh, that's interesting. So he gets on a plane to fly back to Vancouver. And while he's on the plane, he thinks to himself, I'm supposed to be a writer, writer, writer. Let's write something. Let's think up a story. So he comes up with a story about a bunch of people on a charter flight from Toronto to Vancouver. Most everybody eats the fish, and he doesn't because he's not Catholic. And he just happens to have a background, as did Oliver Haley, as a fighter pilot in World War II. And when they all get sick, he has to land the plane. So he starts writing this thing. And and <laughs> he needs paper. He's scouring paper. I mean, he's, he's writing on matchbook covers. But he keeps writing, he keeps writing. And he gets off the plane in Vancouver with this big paper bag full of pieces of paper. Well, as luck would have it, he had a friend of a friend who works for the uh, CBC. He said, well, you know, maybe we could show this to him, see if there's any anything to it. And they show it to the guy, and they they um, apologize for the form because they don't really know what a script should be. And the guy says, form, don't worry about that. We got secretaries who know form. Let's see what the story is. Well, of course, they bought it. They bought it, and they called it, uh, the first time it was shown, it was called Flight into Danger. And it was very successfully received, such that Kraft television theater in uh, New York had a relationship with some people at the CBC and they got wind of it so they picked it up and then I think it, I, didn't, I think it was the next step was they made a movie of it uh, which I think is maybe what the Zucker brothers saw that was it of course Oliver Haley was off to the races so they were enthralled and I think that's why I got the part because in truth, Mr. Hammond could have been anybody. But I had a wonderful time doing that. 
No, they don't. The, the only lines anybody ever said to me fondly were those lines from Risky Business where I'm talking about the, the hi-fi. A certain preponderance of bass. I had no idea what it meant, and then I proceeded to to, to, to turn all the controls off because I didn't know what to do with them. That was another funny one because I wanted to play, I wanted to play the guy from Princeton, the Richard Masser did. Brickman would call me in, and and uh, I would read read the part of the father, and then I would just sit there, and he would say, "Is there something else?" and I would say, yeah, I'd like to like shout out the guy from Princeton. And he would roll his eyes up into his head and say, oh, well, all right. So I'd read the guy from Princeton, and he would thank me, and I'd go away, and then there'd be an offer, they really want you for the father, and I'd say, I want the guy from Princeton. And I had no idea why he wanted me to play the father. And I did not know until... I saw afterward, long after we'd finished shooting, and he called me in to do some looping, and he showed me a reel. And then I realized that uh, what he wanted in me was my total cluelessness about why I was there, <laughs> which is not really something you can ask anybody to act, but that's, I didn't know why I was there, and every suburban father doesn't know why he's there. He just goes through the motions and Pretends he does, and that's how he gets by. Anyway, a certain preponderance of base. I have to say, you were in one of my favorite episodes of Amazing Stories. Oh, my God. Jesus, what an eye. What a memory. Holy smokes. How do you remember grocery lists? There's no room in there for anything. I can't tell you what I had for dinner last night. Leo, God. What a wonderful man. Directed by Leslie. Yes, the first time I ever crossed paths with Leslie. First time I ever met Stephen. Yeah, that was that was a great. That, I loved doing that. That was just wonderful. Such a wonderful story and just so well acted and obviously memorable since I'm still talking about it all these years I've later. And so well produced. I mean, the thing about that show was <coughs> they they spent a dollar. And they spent more than a dollar, and uh, it was great fun to do. Yeah, I had a wonderful time with Leo. And that's where, that's where I first met Sean. Leo and I had a kind of a connection because one of the plays I did in New York was called The Egghead, which was written by Molly Kazan, who was married to Ilya Kazan. And um, Leo and Ilya had a kind of a falling out when Ilya gave the names. I don't know that Leo's was one of them, but it shows you what a small world it is. Leo and his family had a house in Malibu, not the very fashionable part of Malibu, but it was Malibu. And when Kazan came out there to shoot The Last Tycoon, there was a whole sequence on the Malibu coast where uh, the De Niro character is building a special beach house for himself. And he goes out there and spends some time there. And uh, when they were doing that, Sean came skipping out of the woods like the Jimmy Dean character in East of Eden. And uh, they adopted him. 
kind of on the set. And all the time they were there working, he was there. And then there was a memorable moment when Leo came to find him, get him for dinner. Leo was walk Leo said I was walking down one side of an inlet on the coast there. Sean came running up and then he said Gadge came up the other side of the inlet. There was a moment when we looked at each other and he said, Hi Leo and I said, Hi Gadge He said the first words we exchanged in like twenty years. My God, I'm thinking about all these things I haven't thought about in years. Thank you. He said that people might recognize you on the street, and uh, you know. Oh yeah, somebody stopped me in in a, in the market last week, remembering a soap I did. Now we are really talking a long time ago because this particular soap started the summer of 1964, and she remembered it. Makes you wonder how eventful her life may have been, but who knows? Who knows what they're watching? Do you get a lot of people um, wanting you to do lines from Airplane? No. uh, Airplane was not one of my line movies. Airplane was kind of a fluke. I fought like a tiger to get into Airplane. And everybody, nobody could understand why. Because as people kept pointing it out to me, there, there weren't any parts. And I said, no, but it's going to be a big hit. And I had never been in a big hit. I discovered that it's probably better if you're in a big hit in a recognizable part. But I hadn't thought that far ahead. When I went in to to talk to the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrahams, I was the only one who knew about Flight into Danger. Matter of fact, I knew more about Flight into Danger than they did. Flight into Danger was the first written material that Oliver Haley ever produced. And I knew that story, and they were enthralled. Do you know that story? I only know the uh, the zero-hour version of it, but I know that they've adapted that several times, but I haven't read the story. Well, no, what happened with him was that he was a tractor salesman in Canada, and he was calling on people in Toronto, And he had a little time off, and he was walking along the street, and he looked up, and he saw a sign advertising uh, an aptitude test. And he thought, that's kind of funny. Maybe he'd take that aptitude test and see if he had an aptitude for anything except tractor sales. So he took the test, and he finished his afternoon calls, and he was flying back to the West Coast, flying back to Vancouver that night, but he stopped off at the aptitude test to get his results. And they asked him if he had ever done any writing, creative writing. And he said, no, I write a lot of orders for tractors. Ah. And they said, well, you might give that a thought because you test off the charts for creative writing. He said, huh, that's interesting. So he gets on a plane to fly back to Vancouver and while he's on the plane, he thinks to himself, I'm supposed to be a writer, writer, writer. Let's write something. Let's think up a story. So he comes up with a story about a bunch of people on a charter flight from Toronto to Vancouver. Most everybody eats the fish, and he doesn't because he's not Catholic, 
And he just happens to have a background, as did Oliver Haley, as a fighter pilot in World War II. And when they all get sick, he has to land the plane. So he starts writing this thing, and and <laughs> he needs paper. He's scouring paper. I mean, he's, he's writing on matchbook covers. But he keeps writing, he keeps writing, and he gets off the plane in Vancouver with this big paper bag full of pieces of paper. Well, as luck would have it, he had a friend of a friend who works for the uh, CBC. He said, well, you know, maybe we could show this to him and see if there's any anything to it. And they show it to the guy, and they, they um, apologize for the form because they don't really know what a script should be. And the guy says, form, don't worry about that. We got secretaries who know form. Let's see what the story is. Well, of course, they bought it. They bought it, and they called it, uh, the first time it was shown, it was called Flight into Danger. And it was very successfully received, such that Kraft Television Theater in uh, New York had a relationship with some people at the CBC, and they got wind of it, so they picked it up. And then I think it, I didn't, I think it was the next step was they made a movie of it, uh, which I think is maybe what the Zucker brothers saw. And that was it. Of course, Oliver Haley was off to the races. So they were enthralled, and I think that's why I got the part. Because in truth, Mr. Hammond could have been anybody. But I had a wonderful time doing that. No, they don't. The, the only lines anybody ever said to me fondly were those lines from Risky Business, where I'm talking about the, the hi fi, a certain preponderance of base. I had no idea what it meant, and then I proceeded to. <laughs> to, to turn all the controls off because I didn't know what to do with them. That was another funny one because I wanted to play, I wanted to play the guy from Princeton, the Richard Masser did. Bricklin would call me in and and uh, I would read read the part of the father, and then I would just sit there and he would say, "Is there something else?" And I would say, "Yeah, I'd like to. I can shout at the guy from Princeton." And he would roll his eyes up into his head and say, oh, well, all right. So I'd read a guy from Princeton, and he would thank me, and I'd go away, and then there'd be an offer, they really want you for the father, and I'd say, I want that guy from Princeton. And I had no idea why he wanted me to play the father. And I did not know until I saw, afterward, long after we'd finished shooting, and he called me in to do some looping. And he showed me real. And then I realized that uh, what he wanted in me was my total cluelessness about why I was there, <laughs> which is not really something you can ask anybody to act. But that's, I didn't know why I was there. And every suburban father doesn't know why he's there. He just goes through the motions and pretends he does. And that's how he gets by. Anyway, a certain preponderance of base. I have to say, you were in one of my favorite episodes of Amazing Stories. Oh, my God. Jesus, what an eye. What a memory. Holy smokes. I didn't even remember grocery lists. There's no room in there for anything. I can't tell you what I had for dinner last night. Leo, God. What a wonderful man. Directed by Leslie. 
Yes, the first time I ever crossed paths was Leslie. First time I ever met Stephen. Yeah, that was that was a great. That, I love doing that. That was just wonderful. Such a wonderful story, and just so well acted, and obviously memorable. Since I'm still talking about it all these years and, later, and so well produced. I mean, the thing about that show was <clears throat> they they spent a dollar. And they spent more than a dollar, and uh, it was great fun to do. Yeah, I had a wonderful time with Leo. And that's that's where I first met Sean. Leo and I had a kind of a connection because one of the plays I did in New York was called The Egghead, which was written by Molly Kazan, who was married to Ilya Kazan. And um, Leo and Ilya had a kind of a falling out when Ilya gave the names. I don't know that Leo's was one of them, but it shows you what a small world it is. Leo and his family had a house in Malibu, not the very fashionable part of Malibu, but it was Malibu. And when Kazan came out there to shoot The Last Tycoon, there was a whole sequence on the Malibu coast where uh, the De Niro character is building a special beach house for himself. And he goes out there and spends some time there. And uh, when they were doing that, Sean came skipping out of the woods like the Jimmy Dean character in East of Eden. And uh, they adopted him kind of on the set. And all the time they were there working, he was there. And then there was a memorable moment when Leo came to find him, get him for dinner. Leo was walking, Leo said, I was walking down one side of an inlet on the coast there. Sean came running up, and then he said, Gadge came up the other side of the inlet. There was a moment when we looked at each other, and he said, Hi, Leo. And I said, Hi, Gadge. He said, The first words we exchanged, and like, 20 years. My God, I'm thinking about all these things I haven't thought about in years. Thank you. You know, you've been in so many things over the years. What are some of your favorites? What are the ones that, that maybe people have missed that you want to kind of point out to them, like, check this out, be sure to not miss this? Pretty much whatever I've done that was any good or whatever is, is out there. I mean, it, it got a shot. People saw it. There were a couple of television productions that did not get the audience I thought they deserved. One was a, a mini-series for ABC called Washington Behind Closed Doors, uh, which was good. Mostly, people have seen what there is to see, I think. I mean, you've, you've, you've teased up so many memories, I probably will call you back later and say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is... Now, I, I see that Cliff Robertson was in that Washington Behind Closed Doors. Now, you worked with him a few times, right? I worked with him on that uh, and uh, something else. Because I, I want to say he was in that... Um... Man on a Swing? I think you're right. I think he was, yeah. I <laughs> had really very little to do in that except I was I was the lawyer of somebody. 
of the, the somebody that was suspected. It was a strange, strange project. It was Frank Perry, uh, who made some wonderful films, but I'm not sure that was one of them. There's one you mentioned things that uh, will will uh, I weren't seen originally. Or I got a part in the Hunger Games. It, it didn't. It didn't. It's not in the film, but it was a strange and quite wonderful experience because it is, in a, on a certain level, the best work I've ever done. What happened was Francis Lawrence went up and down the East Coast handpicking extras, really handpicking extras from all the people who wanted to be extras in this movie. And in the course of his trips to Wilmington, I got myself on that list, and he he, he chose me uh, for a tiny part in a scene after the, whatever the administration, whatever you call the people on Donald's side, uh, shred the rebel forces, the hospital scene. What happens in the hospital scene is everybody's moaning and groaning. And when I say everybody, I mean 600 extras. We, were, <laughs> we didn't digitize anything. 600 extras in rags and, and terrible makeup. There was even a fly wrangler. So Jennifer comes in, and some of us speak to her. And I try to console her about what Peter seems to be saying about her. And then I try to tell her that we had a very bad time. They made an example out of us. Well, that's really all there is to it. And it occurred to me, that this was an opportunity for a little post-traumatic stress disorder to suddenly show up. So the first time we walked it through in rehearsal, right in the middle of the speech, I kind of burst into tears. And then the scene was over, and I waited for somebody to say something. And... Nobody said anything, so when they set up the camera, I did it again. And at this point, you know, I'd been kind of catching Francis's eye, and he was kind of nodding at me and thumbs up and stuff. So I figured he was pleased, and Jennifer hadn't said anything, except we were talking about when she might be able to do a play, because she'd never done a play. She was terrified. Anyway, everything was going very well. And then we started shooting the thing. And of course, I had to do that about 45 times. I must say, Mike, I was astonished because I did do it 45 times. I didn't know that I could do it 45 times, but I did. When you get a close-up with one of those huge cameras, it's really close. And all three of those went very well, and so I was a little amazed to hear later reports that it was out, and I, I don't have any idea why. I suspect it may have called a little bit too much attention to itself. I was, after all, essentially a glorified extra. I mean, there isn't any reason why anybody cared about my being upset, and uh, 
the point of the scene was not my breakdown, but Jennifer's uh, decision that she would fight against the bad guys. But that was remarkable. So maybe someday I'll find out what happened to it. Maybe it's on the floor somewhere in, uh, in Atlanta, on the cutting room floor. Maybe that piece of film still exists. Well, yeah, I'm hoping maybe it's in the DVD extras or something. I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, I have not actually seen The Mockingjay. I guess I will one of these days. We're getting wonderful residuals, so I could be delighted about that. Well, I uh, really, I just wanted to know what else you're up to these days. At the local college here, I've been helping out occasionally with with uh, lectures and seminars and whatnot. And uh, I asked them, they they asked me, well, we'd like to to show one of your movies. Which which would you like to have shown to a to a class? of, you know, would-be directors and went on. And I said, oh, smile. You didn't say The Happy Hooker? <laughs> no. No. I have The Happy Hooker to thank for my relationship with Lynn Redgrave. It was just a wonder. No, God, that was funny. That was really funny. The guy who directed that, a man named Nick Scarrow, was uh, Mike Nichols' uh script supervisor, I think, on all of his early films, and then decided he wanted to direct one himself. No idea whatever happened to him. But I must say, I remember that as being probably the best thing Jean-Pierre Aumont ever did. He was spectacular in that. Yeah, it's got such a good cast. Yeah. Got me into terrible trouble, though. We were doing an improvisation one morning, and um, we needed a name for my mother, who did not have a name in the movie at that point for some reason. And I suggested Cheryl, which they thought was just wonderful. Unfortunately, Cheryl was the name of the mother of a young woman I was seeing at that time. And she did not share the general amusement at the use of her name particularly when um, when she saw what what's her name was doing with the role of God she was good. Uh, I have something coming out early next month, early in September. It's called 90 Minutes in Heaven. It's an adaptation of a, of a fairly well-known book about a man who goes through a terrible automobile accident and actually winds up in heaven for about 90 minutes until... I don't know, somebody puts the paddles on him and brings him back to Earth. It's a very interesting project because there's this religious group in Atlanta that's got all this money. They have gobs and gobs and gobs of money, so much so that they can afford to make movies without concerning themselves overly much if anybody ever comes to see them. They... uh they got a very good cast. Hayden Christensen is playing the guy. He was one of the recent Luke Skywalker incarnations. They have a, a, an astonishing cameraman who, as far as I could tell during the time that I was working on it, 
is using almost all natural light, so I'm dying to see it. And it's religious, so it's got a message, but it seems to be fairly restrained about that. I'm curious. And you said you're helping out at the university? Every once in a while, yeah. I did a student film and I did a short film for uh, one of the faculty people there. And whatever comes along. There's much less happening here than there used to be before the governor gave away the film industry. It's, I think one of the problems is, is that the whole state does not share equally in the bounties. I mean, they do, if you really want to be noble about it, but they kind of don't. And besides, we are very conservative these days. So there's this whole idea of incentives. Incentives? What incentives? We shouldn't have incentives. So there you go. has lifted and the fairy tales have all been told there's a kiss at the end of the rainbow more precious than a pot of gold in tales of ancient glory every night and maiden fair shall be joined when the quest is over and a kiss is the oath that they swear and when the veil of dreams has lifted and the fairy tales have all been told there's a kiss at the end of the rainbow more precious than a pot of gold My sweet, my dear, my darling You're so far away from me Though an ocean of tears divides us Let the bridge of our love span Just then a part of glory.